Welcome to the Veridical Podcast. I'm Jack Cesare. All right. As usual, plenty going on in the world, but I'm going to steer right past it today. I put up a Instagram poll to help dictate the next episode, and the choice was between a discussion and overview of the state of gender, sexuality, and the nuclear family, particularly here in America and the more developed countries. I wanted to do this because I was inspired after watching the documentary For the Bible Tells Me So for one of my seminary classes. And uh, it's a 2007 documentary following the lives of a few families that would be identified as fundamentalist Christians and uh, seeing how their more dogmatic and ground-level worldviews end up being rather corrosive to their relationships with their kids, who undoubtedly end up being gay. And yeah, after watching that, I felt like it was the spark to the powder keg of opinions I have on the subject. And um, as I have my own podcast, no, what better place to unload all those opinions? The other option was Paul Bloom's book, Against Empathy, and dissecting his case for rational compassion. He makes an excellent case in the book, a case that I have adopted into my own worldview, and I now integrate that, um, that being his thesis, into how I spend my money, how I spend my time, and how I view suffering in the world. Not only has it made processing suffering slightly easier, but it's made my responses slightly more effective and slightly more worthwhile. So it's an excellent book, and I believe the earlier that book gets brought into the light, for some of you, the better. Because it's a book that will affect the way you live, if his thesis resonates with you the way it did with me. And adapting to our world to be more effective and to be using our money in a more useful manner, there is always an urgency for that. However, this morning I woke up and tuned in to the Oscar nominations, and I was crying tears of joy because my second favorite film of all time won eight Oscar nominations. And that movie is All Quiet on the Western Front. Now, I've been into film for coming up on about a year now. And I've watched a lot of movies in the past year. I've watched a lot of movies in the past two years. And I feel like I pay more attention now. I certainly notice things now that I'm passionate about the hobby than I did when I just watched movies casually. And I really believe... All Quiet on the Western Front is a spectacular movie, and it's more than just an action film. Now, for anyone who's seen it, they understand this, and this goes all without saying. Uh, My first favorite movie, as I've mentioned on this pod many times, is Interstellar. Interstellar has changed my life, and I feel like it would be right to do a podcast on Interstellar before doing one on All Quiet on the Western Front. But... As it is Oscar season, and as I had just finished the book, All Quiet on the Western Front, it seems appropriate to talk about why I believe this movie deserves an Oscar, and also compare it with the book, and walk through the two together. A little bit of background. Growing up, I was super passionate about the military. I was watching the Military Channel before it was American Heroes Channel all through my childhood. I think I started probably as early as 11 or 12, watching it. I became super enveloped in World War II, as many young boys do. I was always dreaming about being in the military, and then later law enforcement. And the two great wars were always sort of my center of focus. And I know that's pretty cliche and stereotypical for young hyper boys, But um, it's something that never really wore off. All through high school and into college and through my transition into being a religious person, 
I never lost my passion for knowledge around war. Now, around the age of 17 is when I switched from glorifying it and being um, amused by the carnage to fearing it, to condemning it, and to looking at how a country and its population can work towards reducing war. In the year 2021, I became very passionate about globalism and how globalism reduces war and how nationalism and patriotism are very good virtues and you do want a degree of patriotism. However, when patriotism turns into alienating individuals from other countries, even though countries are man-made borders, I do believe it takes on a negative tone because it makes going to war and killing a lot more easier when you view them as enemies to your in-group. No doubt nationalism and patriotism help you look out for your fellow countrymen. And of course, when we are finite beings, proximity is something that must be taken into account. You're more likely to help your neighbor or someone down the street than you are to help someone in another country. Now, as globalism increases and our social footprint increases, along with our ability to impact the world in ways that are foreign to us now, we will soon be able to have an impact that we can't really resonate with. But until we acquire that echelon, patriotism and nationalism serve as a sort of security, a sort of safety. We clearly evolved as tribal individuals, and as different human groups migrated around the African plains, they encountered other humans. And in a time which was treacherous and hostile, being loyal to a particular tribe and developing tribalism served as a clear advantage. Having trust and social security with those around you in proximity ensured that they would look out for you and offer the same services in return. And I think you can really see uh, nationalism, patriotism, and the effects of borders heightened uh, through many of the wars during the 20th century. And World War I is such a big arbiter of this fact. The historian Christopher Capizola, which I first heard on Lex Friedman's podcast, does an excellent section on the uh, First World War. And he discusses that it was more than just the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand that started the war. There was a lot of tension building up between Germany and the Western nations. And after uh, the Archduke was assassinated, Germany was able to have more leverage and be able to have a bigger influence on those countries. And then um, things kind of eroded from there. Not going to spend too much time talking about the build-up to the First World War. All those um, historical facts are available uh, on the History Channel's website. And there's also a lot of great YouTubers that you can watch to learn more about the Great War and a lot of the intricacies going on there between the nations. I really just want to focus on the novel and the book. So starting with the book, written by Eric Marie Remarque, who actually served in the First World War. Um, he was a German, and the first movie adaptation of the book, uh, I believe, was in the 1940s. It's a black and white movie, and shamefully, I will admit, I still need to see it. And then I believe it got remade into a colorized film in the 70s, and 2022 blessed us with the full CGI special effects and uh, technological advancements of the 21st century, and I'm pleased to say that the book uses basically the same characters as the movie. Beginning with the protagonist, Paul Bomber, he enlists with a, a group of friends, and they are immediately shipped off to the front line. The book does an amazing job at establishing the atmosphere, and you notice a sense of innocence and ignorance in Bomber in the beginning. He is just so clearly unaware of what he is about to get into. And some slight context here. The First World War was the first war to see many inventions. 
It was the first war to see the machine gun, the airplane, the tank, poison gas, and an amount of artillery that was never before seen. And the conjuncture of all these inventions thrown into one war fought by the youth leads the individuals that are fighting to be completely taken off guard. And truth is, no matter how old they were, no one could ever be prepared for the technological horrors of war that awaited them. There's an instance in the beginning of the book where Paul is describing his innocence and the innocence of his friends. And he does this whenever they're bathing. And uh, I just want to read this paragraph. I glance at my boots. They are big and clumsy. The breeches are tucked into them. And standing up, one looks well-built and powerful in these great drain pipes. But when we go bathing and strip, suddenly we have slender legs again and slight shoulders. We are no longer soldiers, but little more than boys. No one would believe that we could carry packs. It is a strange moment when we stand naked. Then we become civilians, and almost feel ourselves to be so. When bathing, Franz Kamerich looks as slight and frail as a child. There he lies now. But why? The whole world ought to pass by this bed and say, That is Franz Kemmerich, nineteen and a half years old. He doesn't want to die. Let him not die. This is said before any combat or action in the book, and I view it as a foreshadowing of what is to come. This war was fought by many uh, young, young boys, some as young as 16, and many people in our culture today, um, typically in the manosphere, are posting about how this was such a glorious time, especially World War II, when 17-year-olds and 18-year-olds and individuals that would lie about their age would go off to war and fight. Um, I don't find a society that sends the young off to fight desirable. Um, I don't believe uh, anyone under the age of 21 should go and see the inside of a baby. Uh, granted, no one should see that. But sending the youth off to fight these wars that are often declared and waged by older politicians is absurd. As Herbert Hoover famously quoted, older men declare war, but it is youth that must fight and die, and it is youth who must inherit the tribulation, the sorrow, and the triumphs that are the aftermath of war. And throughout this book, and through the movie, you will see the innocence of these boys fade away, and their whole lives become enveloped in the war. It becomes all they know, and it is just painful to observe. Later on down, um, Katsinski, who is my favorite character in both the book and the movie, um, just always uh, with a, a wisdom, uh, great help, He's almost like the father figure of their group, just being the most mature, most wise, and most helpful, always sacrificing uh, some food or clothing for, his, uh, for these younger allies of his. Here in the book, he is uh, saying something rather wise, uh, but he's saying it more as a joke. He says, to, regarding soldiers and combat, give them all the same grub and all the same pay and the war would be over and done in a day. And this really does kind of encapsulate the chaos and the pointlessness of many wars. I want to take a step back and say um, I'm not a pacifist, although I would label myself a pseudo-pacifist. I think war should be avoided at all costs, and uh, we have the capabilities to avoid war, unless you have, of course, some tyrannical maniac like a Putin or a Kim Jong-un. In such cases, war can oftentimes be unavoidable. And one of the reasons I look down on pacifism is because absolute pacifism can actually cause more harm than good. I mean, the obvious point is that going to war or engaging in conflict with certain tyrannical maniacs will often cause a large loss of life, but it offsets an even larger loss of life that would be had had you not gone to war. Anyways, the point of me bringing this up is to say that 
when Kat uh, or Katsinski is talking about how if you just gave the soldiers the same food and the same pay, the war would be over, uh, implying that the soldiers would realize how pointless the war is, um, I see his point. And it makes a lot of sense in World War I. Uh, this is a war where many people, um, uh, the soldiers fighting, realized about halfway through, oftentimes earlier, this is just border disputes. This is petty negotiations that are unable to be uh, finished among politicians. This is actually not having a single effect on their life. Meanwhile, a war like the Revolutionary War or the Civil War, those wars had clear and defined points. This war was a turf war that involved the entire globe. An interesting character in the novel is the Corporal Himmelstoss. So Himmelstoss is their, I guess you could call him their drill instructor, their uh, sergeant um, during training, and he uh, is quite aggressive towards this group. He's often giving them the butt of the jobs, making them scrub things with toothbrushes, uh, do extra workouts, and um, just a dreadful person to be around. Later on in the novel, Himmelstoss gets sent to the front, and the irony is the recruits, Paul Bomber and his gang, that he was denigrating and insulting and giving terrible work to, are now more robust and stronger and well-equipped for the war than Himmelstoss. And he begins to realize that age and rank uh, are worthless in comparison to experience when it comes to surviving and fighting on the front lines. Progressing on, Bomber and the group endure a artillery barrage, and this artillery barrage um, immediately shows the random number generator in war, and that there's truly no safe space for you. Um, they describe being in a graveyard, and as they're taking cover by coffins, when the shells hit and explode on the coffins, the bodies and corpses within the coffins help shield them and keep them alive. And the very grim realization that the book states here is, the bodies have been killed once again, but each of them that was flung up saved one of us. To describe someone as being killed once again, as if they did not already suffer enough, is eerie and almost uncanny because the dead obviously don't know what is happening to their bodies. Um, later on, the soldiers, uh, after clearing up the wreckage and uh, finding the wounded, um, find a person that is sort of beyond saving. And the difficult question arises of, do we execute this individual? Here they are, tending to the wounds on this individual. I'll just read it from the page. In the meantime, Cat has taken a bandage from a dead man's pocket, and we carefully bind the wound. I say to the youngster who looks at us fixedly, We're going for a stretcher now. Then he opens his mouth and whispers, Stay here. We'll be back soon, says Cat. We are only going to get a stretcher for you. We don't know if he understands. He whimpers like a child and plucks at us. Don't go away. Cat looks around and whispers, Shouldn't we just take a revolver and put an end to it? The youngster will hardly survive the carrying, and at the most, he will only last a few days. What he has gone through so far is nothing for what he's in for. In an hour, he will become one screaming bundle of intolerable pain. Every day that he can live will be a howling torture, and to whom does it matter whether he has them or not? I nod. Yes, Cat. We ought to put him out of his misery. He stands still for a moment. He has made up his mind. We look around, but we are no longer alone. A little group is gathering from the shell holes and trenches appear heads. We get a stretcher. Cat shakes his head. Such a kid, he repeats. Young innocence. Here you see a young soldier you can imagine is under 18, screaming in pain. He's unable to understand what's happening around him. All he knows is 
His arms hurt, and his legs are mangled. And to think that this is actually the easy part. After this, all he has to look forward to is getting amputated, infections, and all without any morphine. It's crazy to read the statistics of how people died during the war. Um, many people died from the Spanish influenza, which was wrecking havoc at the time. Many died from trench foot, hypothermia, starvation, and uh, other diseases. It's crazy that in a war with so much technology, it was often not bullets and artillery shells killing people. Just the visuals taken from early photographs is haunting enough. Here in chapter 6, Paul Bomber says probably my favorite line in the whole book. He says, It is this chance that makes us indifferent. A few months ago, I was sitting in a dugout playing scat. After a while, I stood up and went to visit some friends in another dugout. On my return, nothing more was to be seen of the first one. It had been blown to pieces by a direct hit. I went back to the second and arrived just in time to lend a hand digging it out. In the interval, it had been buried. And this here is my, my favorite line. It is just as much a matter of chance that I am still alive as that I have been hit. In a bomb-proof dugout, I may be smashed to atoms and in the open may survive ten hours bombardment unscathed. No soldier outlives a thousand chances, but every soldier believes in chance and trusts his luck. This premise of laying in a bomb-proof dugout in a trench or a foxhole designed to keep you safe, well, that may not matter if the bombardment hits you directly. And the idea that standing in the middle of the open may leave you unscathed. This just shows that the way death will find you in this war, uh, there is no hiding from it. And when death is ready to strike, it will strike. The novel does an excellent job at showing how death and bombardment and enemy attacks um, appear out of nowhere. And this isn't lousy writing, but rather ingenious writing. Um, here, there's an attack. I'll read this. All day, the sky is hung with observation balloons. There's a rumor that the enemy are going to put tanks over and use low-flying planes for the attack. But that interests us less than what we hear of the new flamethrowers. We wake up in the middle of the night. The earth booms. Heavy fire is falling on us. We crouch into corners. We distinguish shells of every caliber. Each man lays hold of his things and looks again every minute to reassure himself that they are still there. The dugout heaves. The night roars and flashes. We look at each other in the momentary flashes of light, and with pale faces and pressed lips, shake our heads. Every man is aware of the heavy shells tearing down the parapet, rooting up the embankment and demolishing the upper layers of concrete. When a shell lands in the trench, we note how the hollow, furious blast is like a blow from the paw of a raging beast of prey. Already by morning, a few of the recruits are green and vomiting. They are too inexperienced. Slowly, the gray light trickles into the post and pales the flashes of the shells. Morning has come. The explosion of mines mingles with the gunfire. That is the most dementing convulsion of all. The whole region where they go up becomes one grave. The reliefs go out. The observers stagger and covered with dirt and trembling. One lays down in silence in the corner and eats. The other, an older man of the new draft, sobs. Twice he has been flung up over the parapet by the blast of the explosions without getting any more than shell shock. The recruits are eyeing him. We must watch them. These things are caction. Already some lips begin to quiver. It is good that it is growing daylight. Perhaps the attack will come before noon. And it is at the end of this passage you realize the attack hasn't happened yet. This is only the barrage. The enemy's soldiers are yet to come. The visual descriptions by the author, Eric, are so brilliant. You not only catch the horrors of war, but the atmosphere envelops you. You feel the peace immediately get overturned by the shells. Maybe too often I'm busy reading technical books or books about religion or philosophy to ever know that these books exist. 
Um, but I don't think it's a coincidence that this book is often heralded as the greatest war novel of all time. I do believe this is a gem of writing, and I think that is mainly because of the author's experience. Similar to the movie Saving Private Ryan, that opening scene is just brutal. Come to find out they had D-Day veterans authenticating the scene and verifying it to gauge its accuracy. And I think the experience of Eric Marie uh, really contributes to this book more than anything else, more than writing style, even. And I don't think that's an insult. Continuing on, after the shelling, as I mentioned, the attack hasn't happened yet. Um, later on, it begins. I'll read here. No one would believe that in this howling waste there could still be men, but steel helmets now appear on all sides of the trench, and fifty yards from us a machine gun is already in position and barking. The wire entanglements are torn to pieces, yet they offer some obstacle. We see the stormtroops coming. Our artillery opens fire. Machine guns rattle. Rifles crack. The charge works its way across. High and crop begin with the hand grenades. They throw as fast as they can. Others pass them. The handles with the strings already pulled. High throws 75 yards. Crop 60. It has been measured. The distance is important. The enemy, as they run, cannot do much before they are within 40 yards. We recognize the smooth, distorted faces, the helmets. They are French. They have already suffered heavily when they reach the remnants of the barbed wire entanglements. A whole line has gone down before our machine guns. Then, we have a lot of stoppages, and they come nearer. I see one of them, his face upturned, fall into a wire cradle. His body collapses. His hands remain suspended as though he was praying. Then, his body drops clean away, and only his hands with the stumps of his arms, shot off, now hang in the wire. The moment we are about to retreat, three faces rise up from the ground in front of us. Under one of the helmets, a dark pointed beard and two eyes that are fastened on me. I raise my hand, but I cannot throw into those strangers' eyes. For one mad moment, the whole slaughter whirls like a circus around me, and these two eyes alone are motionless. Then the head raises up, a hand, a movement, and my hand grenade flies through the air and into him. We make for the rear, pull wire cradles into the trench, and leave bombs behind us with the strings pulled, which ensures us a fiery retreat. The machine guns are already firing from the next position. We have become wild beasts. We do not fight. We defend ourselves against annihilation. It is not against men that we fling our bombs. What do we know of men in this moment when death is what is hunting us down? Now, for the first time in three days, we can see his face. Now, for the first time in three days, we can oppose him. We feel a mad anger. The writing here is just brutal. I mean, the imagery and the dehumanization of the opponents. And you get the sense that they have to dehumanize them in order to survive. This is not a malicious dehumanization that uh, Paul and the Germans are doing here. This is a dehumanization that is necessary, or you will die as well. He writes here just one more uh, ruthlessly poetic line. But we are swept forward again, powerless, madly savage and raging. We will kill, for they are still our mortal enemies. Their rifles and bombs are aimed against us, and if we do not destroy them, they will destroy us. There is no choice in this. There's no option for peace. You either kill or be killed, especially when the trenches collide and hand-to-hand -hand combat ensues. Uh, your options are down to one. This entire middle section of the book is just so heavy and so poetic. When I say poetic, I don't mean lightly poetic. I mean brutally poetic. Um, it takes a literary master to write in this type of language and to keep one engaged. Um, the true horrors of this war and its lack of meaning are worded so perfectly in these passages. Recall earlier the um, passage on them bathing and 
Paul Bomber is thinking of their innocence and how they look like children with their clothes off. Um, Post-combat, this realization is much more grim. He writes, And even if these scenes of our youth were given back to us, we would hardly know what to do. The tender, secret influence that passed from them into us could not rise again. We might be amongst them and move in them. We might remember and love them and be stirred by the sight of them, but it would be like gazing at the photograph of a dead comrade. Those are his features. It is his face. And the days we spend together take on a mournful life in the memory. But the man himself, it is not. Continuing on, uh, after the combat, Paul Bomber gets leave and is able to go home. And uh, he worries, of course, because he doesn't know if he's going to be able to find his friends when he returns to combat. And uh, this scene of returning home to his mother is not in the movie. It is unique to the book, and it takes up a substantial amount of pages in the book. And it's this beautiful, painful break in the, uh, in the war where he returns home. He feels like an alien, as you can imagine. Returning from these scenes that I just described to clean air, clean food, and a family that loves you, clean sheets, washed clothes, uh, baths. I mean, this must feel like a foreign land to him. This is uh, like heaven, yet he can't appreciate it because he's too concerned about his comrades. He's too concerned about what he has to go back to. He notes here, What is leave? A pause that only makes everything after it so much worse. Already, the sense of parting begins to intrude itself. My mother watches me silently. I know she counts the days. Every morning she is sad. It is one day less. She has put away my pack. She does not want to be reminded by it. The hours pass quickly, if a man broods. I pull myself together and go up with my sister to the slaughterhouse to get a pound or two of bones. That is a great favor, and people line up early in the morning and stand waiting. Many of them faint. You get the sense that the supplies and food available to even the civilian population is dwindling. For those that don't know, during the First World War, there was a blockade uh, around um, Germany on all sides. And so no imports were able to get into the country. And of course, the economy can't grow because obviously no exports are getting out either. So many people were starving, and no doubt this had a crippling effect on the German population and morale. The last night that Paul gets at home is tear-jerking, and my first time reading it, I I shed some tears. He felt estranged with his mother this whole return home, knowing that he might return to the war and just be smashed to smithereens, and his mother will um, not be able to comprehend what he experienced. But there's... A glimpse of somewhat closure in this scene. Um, His mother and him have one final interaction, and you see a slight amount of love and authenticity here. He's able to be himself. He's able to talk fluidly with his mother. And you see the relationship that a young 18-year-old boy should have with his mother. In the book, his mother is sick, and she's not faring so well. So he ends the conversation by taking her back to her room and tucking her into bed. It's almost ironic. Um, Hear the end. Uh, I'll read. The room is dark. I hear my mother's breathing and the ticking of the clock. Outside the window, the wind blows and the chestnut trees rustle. On the landing, I stumble over my pack, which lies there already made up because I have to leave early in the morning. I bite into my pillow. I grasp the iron rods in my bed with my fist. I ought never to come here. Out there, I was indifferent and often hopeless. I'll never be able to be so again. I was a soldier, and now I am nothing but an agony of myself, for my mother, for everything that is so comfortless and without end. I ought never to have come on leave. I mean... This is the bottom of the human psyche during a war. There is nowhere to turn. When peacetime 
even for a glimpse, becomes hell for you. What can give you a sense of heaven? After he returns back to the front, he is reunited with his uh, group, and um, they all catch up, share stories, um, recap on Paul's time home, and um, near the end here, there's yet another battle that ensues. The combat has not changed, and the description of combat has not changed. However, there's a scene here in the book uh, that's also shared in the movie, and I'm going to skip over it here in the book, because I want to describe it um, when we discuss the movie. The scene is one of the most powerful and painful scenes uh, that I've seen on film. Paul Bomber is later wounded and finds himself in a hospital, and um, I'm going to save a lot of the descriptions about the hospital. I want to leave some content in this book for others to explore, but I'll read this one line that I think is ruthlessly powerful. It's a very simple line that reads, a hospital alone shows what war is. And when you get the context of what's going on before this line and after this line, this truly takes form. And when you find images um, from the Great War uh, regarding the medical field, the hospital tents, and what combat medics had to do, and you read some of their testimonies, and you see some of these images, it is, I mean, there's no word in the English language to describe how depraved these situations got. After recovering from his injuries at the hospital, um, in pure World War I fashion, he is sent yet again back to the front line. And um, describing the weather here, he says, Behind us lay rainy weeks, gray sky, gray fluid earth, gray dying. If we go out, the rain at once soaks through our overcoat and clothing, and we remain wet all the time we are in the line. We never get dry. Those who will wear high boots tie sandbags around the tops so that the mud does not pour in so fast. The rifles are caked, the uniforms caked, everything is fluid and dissolved. The earth, one dripping, soaked, oily mass, in which lie yellow pools with red spiral streams of blood, and in which the dead, wounded, and survivors slowly sink down. It is hard in our cushiony lifestyle here in the 21st century to imagine this kind of combat. And no movie, and no book, and not even any true testimony will ever be able to fully contextualize how soulless the human species got for these few years. As beautiful as the ending is to this book, I'm actually going to save it. I'm going to let um, you guys read that on your own. For some uh, context, after watching the movie in theaters, walking out of the theater, I mean, in the motion of walking out, I actually bought this book online. Uh, I got very lucky. The movie was streaming in theaters. Now, it's a Netflix special, yet it's still got some theaters sparsely across the country to be able to play it. And I went to it alone, and I went two days in a row after. So I saw the movie every day for three days in a row, and I regretted none of it. Moving to talk about the movie now, um, it's been out for only a couple months, and I've seen the movie nine times now. I've tried to show as many people as I can, because there's something interesting about this war movie. Um, many of us are used to the war movies like Lone Survivor, Saving Private Ryan, American Sniper, 12 Strong, and these can be exciting movies, uh, these can be fun movies, these can be uh, badass movies, but none of those can describe All Quiet on the Western Front. The problem I see with war movies, and there's a huge philosophical discussion to have about them, is that many times, especially the Hollywood-produced war movies, these movies often appear um, <laughs> like recruitment videos, so to speak. 
and if not that, they come off as superhero movies, or G.I. Joe-style movies. American Sniper was a great film, and it was a tragedy about the home life, the mental state, and the outcome of Chris Kyle. However, that movie, um, I have a lot of criticism for it. What it's trying to accomplish, I feel, is rather ingenuine. I'm certain I just got a lot of backlash for saying that. Again, I like the film, and I think the story is remarkable. However, I think the portrayal of it is more of a superhero movie. Um, All Quiet on the Western Front is made by Germans, and it's uh, it's in the German language, and uh, it's an all-German cast. And you notice this when you watch the film. Uh, for an international film, I think this morning it got, that was one of its Oscar nominations, was uh, international film premieres. Um, the filmmaker Francois Truffaut once said, there is no such thing as an anti-war film. And this is because of the paradox of to make an anti-war film, you have to portray war in a very entertaining and in a very exciting light, meaning it's often pretty captivating. And I mean, original, um, some of the great originals like Tora Tora Tora, Thin Red Line, Patton, Longest Day, these are what captivated me when I was a child. Um, those are war movies from the 80s and 90s that I watched growing up around 2008-2009. And um, you could try to label them as anti-war, but it's because of their portrayal of war that got me so interested in the subject. However, All Quiet on the Western Front appears to break this law. It is horrifying, and just like the book, provides an atmosphere that completely envelops you and makes you feel as if you are truly there. You feel uh, every gunshot. In particular, there's a trench-clearing scene in the movie. Uh, happens right in the middle. There are three major battles. It is the, the middle battle. And because they're using bolt-action rifles, each shot feels so personal and intentional. And the death that ensues each shot is remarkable. The movie portrays war in such a raw and unglorious way, but yet it is exciting and action-packed, but yet you don't feel a affinity towards conflict after watching this. I believe after watching this, um, even though I was predisposed to um, peace via globalism, I believe anyone watching this gains a new outlook on war that motivates them to posit their worldview in a way that will do almost anything to ensure nothing like this can happen again. From this morning, these are um, all the Oscar nominations the movie got. It got Academy Award for Best Picture, Academy Award for Best International Feature Film, uh, the Award for Best Music, being the original score, uh, Academy Award for Best Writing, Academy Award for Best Visual Effects, Academy Award for Best Cinematography, Academy Award for Best Production Design, Academy Award for Best Makeup and Hairstyling. I'll want to touch on that here in a bit. Uh, award for Best Actor in a Supporting Role, Award for Best Film, ADG Excellence in Production Design Awards, a Golden Globe Award for Best Foreign Language Film, BAFTA Award for Best Original Score, uh, the list just continues on. Uh, but I covered the main Oscar nomination awards there. Uh, one of them being the uh, makeup. Um, there is this, uh, one of the lines I read in the book describing caked mud on the uniforms and the soldiers and the weapons. The way they show mud in this film is special. When you watch a soldier step in it and you see the oils of blood and... Uh, gasoline in the puddles. The way the mud dries on the face of Paul Bomber on many of these scenes, it turns him into a creature of some sorts. And real quick, just like in the book, you see his humanity erode 
As war begins to take its true form, the makeup and costume design for this film is certainly worthy of that Oscar, I believe. Um, and anyone watching it will see the minute details the director put into this film. Um, regarding the opening scene, it, something quite powerful um, is used here. It opens with a battle, and you see a man named Heinrich being ordered to charge up over the trench into the Hellfire Storm. And um, he engages, and it ends with him uh, putting his weapon down, pulling his shovel out, and charging, and uh, killing a man, or stabbing him at least. And then just this eerie transition into the processing of dead bodies after a battle, and the stripping of their uniforms, and these huge, huge bundles of bloody uniforms sent back to the home front, where they are then sanitized, sewn up, and reissued to the next line of recruits. And um, as I noted, the, the beginning's character is a man named Heinrich. And when Paul Bomber gets his uniform, the name tag reads Heinrich. And you see the recycling of human souls and human bodies in the war. This movie truly was a meat grinder in the worst sense. Um, after this, just like the book, Paul Bomber enlists with his friends, and off to the front they go, and um, they are immediately greeted with a uh, artillery attack. Um, just like in the book, my favorite character is Katsinski or Cat. You really get to see his face and his eyes in the movie uh, as opposed to the book, and you can see the care he has for the boys in the movie. You can see the look of despair he has when he sees them suffering, and you can see the look of earnestness in his eyes when he's trying to help. He is, if there is anything uh, of such, a breath of fresh air in the movie for the boys. He provides a safe space in the most unsafe spaces. After the initial barrage, um, one of the two most powerful scenes in the movie um, takes place. The first powerful scene is the death of Ludwig. Ludwig is uh, one of Paul's friends that he enlists with. And the reason the scene is so um, just heart-wrenching is when Paul finds Ludwig's body, because Paul is collecting tags, he turns him over, he realizes it's his friend, collects his tag, and then he does something that, if you understand military culture, um, the context is easier to understand. He begins cleaning his uniform. Now granted, Ludwig is lying dead, bloody, muddy, with a leg missing, yet Paul is trying to wipe as much mud off of him and button his buttons to make him look handsome. Now, for those in the military, they understand the uniform and its neatness is a great sign of respect, and it's a sign of honor. It's a sign of, I don't know how to word it exactly, um, I'm not in the military, but if you know anyone in the military, it's interesting to hear them describe their uniforms. Um, this is why so many people in the military get punished by a drill sergeant, if one piece of your uniform is out of line. And um, there's just this sense of honor, the sense of your quality as an individual is represented in the uniform. Another um, sidebarred theme in the movie that you don't get in the book is the political discourse between the French and the Germans. Um, at this time in the war, peace negotiations were underway, and the Kaiser had just abdicated. And abdicated means he relinquished his position. It's uh, similar to a resignation. And on the political front, you get to observe probably my second favorite character, Mr. Erzberger, who's a politician, attempt to find an armistice with the French. No doubt Germany was getting the lower end of the deal, but when you're losing a war and tens of thousands are dying every day, you don't really get to call the shots. But Erzberger represents 
almost everything I would love to be in a man. He is alarmed by the state of the nation and by the loss of life in the war and has given his pride away in order to end this war at all costs. He doesn't care about borders. He does not care about money. All he cares about are the lives and the dignity of these soldiers. Now, of course, he's also practical. And of course, he also tries to negotiate a fair deal. He asks the French for peace. He asks them to hold fire or, or cease fire during the negotiations. Um, unfortunately, to no avail, the French um, intend to keep fighting during the negotiations. And he instructs all of the other generals and politicians around him to put their pride aside and to think of all the dead that are piling up with every minute wasted. He is just an amazing um, factor in this whole uh, unfolding. If there is a definition of patriotism and nationalism that I think is healthy, uh, Erzberger represents that in this film. And he is contrasted by uh, General Friedrich, who, if there is one, is the antagonist of this film. I do not believe the antagonists in this film are the French. I see this as a politicians versus soldiers uh, sort of conflict, rather than soldiers versus soldiers. Obviously, the combat is soldier versus soldier. But you begin to realize, uh, not unsimilar to the Vietnam War, this is all politics. And this is all stuff that can be sorted out with pen and paper, not with the lives of these young and previously innocent boys. General Friedrich is easy to hate. He is easy to despise. He is the bottom of humanity engulfed in pride, and he calls himself a soldier. He's anything but. He does none of the fighting. And the movie makes this realization jump out at you. While the soldiers are off in the trench, getting their skulls crushed in by tanks and uh, having their bodies ripped apart, it'll then cut to him sitting in his manor, eating steak, drinking wine, and feeding uh, steak and meat to his dog. Meanwhile, on the front, they're eating moldy turnip bread. He is just overweight, lazy, rude, vulgar. It's just the complete opposite of what a true soldier is. Now, despite the peace talks being underway, the general decides to send the troops in for an offensive. And so the scene cuts and the soldiers, Paul included. Uh, Ludwig is now dead, so it's um, Bomber, Franz, Krupp, Kaczynski, and uh, a new character named Jean, or Jaden, um, and they charge over. And so begins the most intense combat uh, in a war movie I've seen probably ever, if not in a very long time. Um, the trench-clearing scene is brutal in a very particular way, because most war movies we watch have automatic weapons. In this one, with bolt-action weapons clearing the trench, every shot feels personal. Every shot has a one-second break before the next shot. And you can feel the power behind each of these um, rifle cracks. And because it's so close, there's this stare you have into the enemy. The stare of complete alienization and dehumanization. As the book says, you're no longer fighting against the enemy. You're just fighting against death itself. And um, after the Germans capture a trench, uh, tanks roll on the scene. French tanks. And for many people in the war... The movie doesn't state this explicitly, but for many people in the war, this was their first time seeing a tank. These were new machines on the battlefield, and you just have to imagine the fear instilled in you as you see this lumbering heap of metal with a bunch of barrels pointing out of it 
inching and crawling towards you. You, you, something you've never seen. And then all of a sudden it starts firing explosive shells at you, and you watch your friends get ripped apart. And then they start chugging along towards you. Uh, they easily cross over the trench, and all the ground they made is immediately reset as they have to retreat. Now, as Paul's retreating, um, he falls into a foxhole, and so begins easily, for me at least, the most powerful scene of the entire movie, the most powerful scene of the entire book. And this is the part of the book that I left out, because this scene, visually, um, broke me. This is a scene where Paul's retreating, jumps in a foxhole, and he's hiding in the water, um, pretending to be dead. And he takes his knife out in case someone joins him in this foxhole. And a French gets wounded by an artillery shell and lands in the foxhole and looks at Paul. And Paul looks at him. And Paul has to then slowly chug through this water at the bottom of the foxhole, jump on top of this Frenchman and begin stabbing him. He stabs him about eight times and then gets off of him in shock. And the Frenchman is not dead. He's just wounded. And you have to listen to this gurgling of blood, this look of helplessness, this silence as all the soldiers have retreated and the surviving French have chased the Germans to the next uh, front line. And so the movie where everyone feels like just a pawn where everyone's personality evaporates during combat, that fades away. And you now have just two individuals alone in isolation, and their personalities begin to uh, take more of the forefront. And you see the complete depravity that war will bring someone to. As Paul is trying to shut the Frenchman up, because he just can't bear to hear the gurgling and uh, crying from him, so he grabs mud off the ground and shoves it in his mouth. And then you see Paul panic and crawl away and is almost hysterical as he rocks back and forth in the fetal position, telling the Frenchman to shut up. And then, after uh, a lapse of more gurgling noises and a look of desperation on the Frenchman, Paul has his humanity um, shine. And you, you watch him crawl back over and then begin to try to helplessly, and helplessly is the key word here, helplessly um, provide aid to this Frenchman. Tries healing him, gives him dirty water to drink because it's all that's available, and he's trying to help him with the pain. And the, the Frenchman slowly, slowly dies. And you, but before that, the Frenchman, Paul pulls out a knife to cut open the Frenchman's uniform so Paul can address a wound. And the Frenchman's obviously very scared because Paul's holding a knife over him. And you, you watch Paul yell, no, 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 comrade, 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 trying to comfort him. And this desperation to just even to comfort him is so powerful. Um, after the French soldier dies, Paul pulls out uh, his wallet, finds his journal and his address, and he's talking to the dead man and saying, you know, I'll write your family. I promise, I promise, I promise. And, and you watch him hug this lifeless, bloody, uh, muddy body. And this is another part that was just so powerful to me, was its parallel nature to when Ludwig died, and Paul was trying to clean the blood off of Ludwig's body uh, in the mud. And you watch Paul clean the mud and blood off of this man's cheeks and his forehead and his face, and this pointless attempt. It's just painful to watch. And anyone watching this movie, listening to the music at the moment, and just having these visuals of Paul with caked on mud and blood all over him. It's just, and I, I know I keep repeating this, just the loss of innocence and complete dominance of depravity. 
And when I think of the upcoming Oscars, this scene alone is Oscar-worthy. With makeup, music, acting, all of it. This scene makes the movie complete. Um, this scene in the book makes the book complete. I obviously don't want to spoil the entire movie, so I'm going to skip over some other parts. Um, I'm honestly hesitant to spoil the ending, so I'm actually just going to avoid doing that completely as well. I will ensure up to this point that even though I've discussed a lot of the movie, and though I discussed my favorite scene, the, the movie is still um, very much uncompromised here by this podcast, still worth the watch. Uh, I have not exhausted the contents of the movie by, by any means. But without spoiling any more scenes, there is one more idea or theme in the movie for Paul Bomber that I want to talk about. And it's not just his loss of innocence, but the loss of every bit of hope he has around him. It appears all of his friends, all of his sources of hope, and anything that can make him smile is taken away from him. Up to the very last minute, this is someone who not only is put into the worst position a person can be in in these years, but is also personally dealt a bad hand by just sheer unluck. And Felix Kramer, the actor who plays Paul Bomber, uh, which is, again, amazing these actors are in so few other movies, and the movies they are in are just indie films. His face evolves over the course of the film. As he loses more and more, you can see, you can, you can literally visualize the loss he's experiencing by the evolution of his face through the movie. And by the end of the movie, you're looking at a shell of a person. You're looking at uh, almost an uncanny experience of someone who's not even human anymore. I want to talk about one more experience I had while watching this movie, and that is the theological experience I had. While watching this, I felt this weird attraction to God, and it's an attraction that was triggered rather strangely. I was watching these scenes of complete carnage, and though it's just a movie, um, to know it's a failed attempt to capture what happened in real life made me even more um, yearning for something to make this right. There was this inner tug, and this, this is not an apologetic, this is not an argument for God. I don't believe there's any you know, groundbreaking evidence in my experience. This is just my experience, and I can't expect my experience to be a um, huge persuader for anyone. But me personally, I had this yearning to make this right. I had a, this yearning to think of what could fix this and seeing how desperate people were to kill and how unpopular the attempt to not kill was. I just, there's this unfortunate but also fortunate realization that only God can fix this. It was just this painful turning to God and a sense of hope, even, internally for me. It's hard to believe that in a time where it feels as if God's face had turned away from Eastern Europe at the time, it's just crazy and marvelous to know that that was a God that was uh, present at all times in the souls of every single soldier. And we often salute the tomb of the unknown soldier, the soldiers that died, that had no identity, the soldiers that got lost, or MIA, and we can't recover their bodies. And in a more graphic sense, the soldiers that faced a catastrophe of war that made their body unretrievable, or even worse, made their body not exist anymore. Even these forgotten souls are known infinitely by God. They're forgotten to us and our finite ability to recall them. But to God, he knew everything about them, inside and out. 
and loved them, despite all that they had to do during this war. Uh, this is a god clearly worthy of worship. And as I begin to close this podcast, I encourage all of y'all to obviously watch the movie um, and even give the 1930s um, original a chance. For y'all that didn't know, the original movie was actually made with real World War I veterans in the cast. It's pretty extraordinary. Um, obviously, pick up the book. It's an easy read. It's for entertainment. It's not an academic book. You can read it in one day or two if you try. Um, this is a marvelous piece of art. It has impacted me in a way not completely like Interstellar, but it's given me a view on life um, and on war that you often find hard to tap into. This book opens a door to not being glamorous, not being here for action, just here for the humans, the people behind the war. And now, as I leave, I'm going to leave you with the opening text of the book, All Quiet on the Western Front. This book is to be neither an accusation nor a confession, and least of all, an adventure. For death is not an adventure to those who stand face to face with it. It will try simply to tell a generation of men who, even though they may have escaped shells, were destroyed by war. I thank all y'all for joining me in the podcast. I'm excited for some more episodes to come. 2023 is shaping up like any other year in the past three years. But um, continue to look forward. Thanks for being here. God bless.